Hi, welcome to In the Pod Show, where I, Sam Reinstein, discuss the weekly Torah portion. Each week, I will bring in a different educator who will bring in their own insight. I'm the rabbi at Congregation Kol Israel in Brooklyn, and I've come to notice that there's lack of Torah that is both high-level and accessible. This podcast is an effort to begin to fill that gap. This week, for Parsha Nasso, I have Jeremy Barovitz. Hi, Jeremy. Hello, Rabbi Sam. Hey, it's great to have you in person. Uh, thank you so much. It's great to be here yeah. in audio person. Right. <laughs> um, would you mind introducing yourself for everyone? Sure. So my name's Jeremy. I, uh, I live in Brooklyn. I am a congregant of Rabbi Sam Reinstein. And uh, I'm active. I'm a Jewish educator, and I'm active in a lot of different Jewish organizations, including Moisha House and Base Hillel. And uh, I also am one of the co-organizers for Brooklyn Beit Midrash, which is a non-denominational, uh, inclusive, open Beit Midrash that meets in different places uh, in Brooklyn. Yeah, it's great. Just a place where people can come and learn. Doesn't matter their background. Or yes, anything. we try to, and uh, yeah. one of our big things is we really try to get uh, our learners to become teachers. So we mm-hmm. really try and help a lot of the local people uh, figure out how to bring out their own Torah. Nice. Um, and share that with the local community. Cool. Uh, so in the usual format, um, we're gonna, I'm gonna do a very quick summary. I'll try and keep it um, under half a minute, but likely it will be closer to a minute um, of Parshat Naso, uh, the second Parshat in the Book of Amidbar. Uh, so here we, here I, we... I'm going to time you, just okay. so you know. <laughs> okay, fine. So here we go. Um, the Parsha begins finishing off the Levite census from last week's Torah portion. Um, now that the tabernacle, the Mishkan, is filled with God's presence, certain individuals must stay outside the camp, including the person inflicted with sarat or leprosy. Um, the section continues with the rules about robbing and lying, and about rob- robbing the convert specifically. The Torah then goes on to discuss three separate rituals. One, the Sota ritual, the suspected adulteress. Two, a person who vows to become a Nazir, where they can no longer drink grapes, uh, cut their hair, or be in contact with the dead, and the priestly blessings. Um, As the tabernacle is now being inaugurated, each of the Nisim, the heads of tribes, bring gifts. Each of their gifts is exactly the same, but the Torah lists them each all the time. All right, 41 and a half okay. seconds. I'll take that. Yeah, it's not bad. Not bad. <laughs> um, so we'll start with uh, what Jeremy's going to um, discuss um, specifically around the Sota ritual, um, the ritual of the suspected adulteress. Uh, so, uh, Jeremy, go ahead. Yeah, thank you, Rabbi Sam. So, ch- the second half of chapter five in the book of Bamidbar is for me one of the really difficult passages in the Torah. Um, and a part of the reason is because we have this whole ritual, which we know is the Sota ritual, but actually right before we turned on, you and I were discussing <laughs> that actually the woman is never referred to as the Sota in the Torah itself, and that's uh, actually just how the Mishnah refers to her. Um, right, the word Sota itself never comes up. Right. Kind of crazy. Uh, and we'll t- I'll talk a little bit about where that comes, comes from, but basically the situation that we have is a man suspects his wife of adultery. And, uh, but he has no proof. There are no witnesses to say that uh, she, has, um, uh, she has been unfaithful in their relationship. But in the words of the text, a fit of jealousy has come over him. And he is so convinced that his wife has done something wrong um, that an elaborate ritual is created uh, where the woman will approach the high priest um, and an elaborate ritual will be taken where they'll take some earth and some water and uh, different spices and different 
offerings and mix them together. And then the priest will have uh, some sort of bitter waters, meimara, uh, that he will give to the woman to drink, um, the, 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 um, the accused adulteress. And the woman will drink it in public view. And if uh, the woman has committed adultery, the, the bitter waters are going to cause her stomach to in some way enlarge in, um, in a way that will eventually kill her. Um, and, but if the woman hasn't done anything, then the waters will not affect her at all. Um, and this is really interesting. And then, uh, it, again, the woman is never referred to once as a sota. But in verse 20 of chapter 5, Pasukaf, it says, Vatki satit tachati shech, which means, uh, but if you have gone astray while married to your husband. And the word astray uh, is satit, and it's actually with a sin. Um, but it the, sounds similar. It sounds similar. Yeah. So the, the woman is called the sota as the one who has gone astray. And it's interesting because in the Perak, in the Torah, it's spelled with a sin. But in the Mishnah, they use a samech um, for the entire tractate of Sota. So uh, as we enter the sort of rabbinic era of, uh, uh, of contemplating this, this ritual, um, the, Mish- the Mishnah gets into even more detail about what this ritual looks like. And actually, it gets a little even more difficult for me in a lot of ways hmm. because the woman has to be- take down her hair and bare her chest and there's this like very humiliate, humiliating aspect right. about this entire ritual. Even if like likely she didn't even do it. Right. right. Even whether and and truthfully, whether she did it or not, it's humiliating. Right. Yeah. You know, it's regardless. just like right. regardless, it's this terrible ritual, but all the more so if she hasn't done anything right. wrong. Sure. Um, and it's a really, really difficult thing. And I I've struggled with this a lot. I've been in a lot of classes where I've even had uh, female teachers trying to explain uh, what this could mean. And I've always sort of struggled with it. Um, and I was looking at some of the different commentators. And uh, there's a very famous uh, Ramban uh, on this section of the Parsha. And Ramban points out something really interesting. Um, of all the 613 mitzvot in the Torah, this is the only one that requires a miracle from God in order to work. Hmm. So the priest... The priest creates this bitter water mixture. And if you've done nothing wrong, the bitter waters do nothing to you. You're just drinking like bitter water. doesn't taste so good. Maybe it gives you a little stomach ache. I don't know. But nothing really bad is going to happen to you. But if you have committed adultery, God will cause these bitter waters to cause your belly to extend and eventually explode and kill you. Right, and even like the sacrifices that we give, like sure there were some miracles that happened in the temple, but like it wasn't predicated on those, right? Right. It was the all mitzvah is for us to bring to the bring sacrifice. Yeah, Whether yeah. or not God accepts it is separate from the mitzvah. But here right, the right. mitzvah is to give this thing that only works if God allows right, it to right, work. Right. Interesting. Which is already a really interesting idea. Like, what does it mean that our mitzvot, that our commandments, are done in partner like dependent on God's action. Hmm. Um, and this is really the only one that it's it's just not entirely in our hands. Right. That it really is up to Hashem to determine whether or not the woman has done this. Right. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting uh, uh, Ramban. And I started uh, uh, looking more in, uh, into the idea of the ritual. And actually, the rabbis of the Talmud, um, they, I think, also are struggling with this ritual a lot. So the Mishnah really details it very specifically, but 
you can hear some of the rabbis having some difficulty. And one of the really interesting things um, that a lot of them pick up on uh, is that uh, it's not clear that the that the whole ceremony works if the husband has been unfaithful. Hmm. That there's this idea that's talked about um, in Masachet Sota that says that um, that in fact, because of the way the language works, um, it seems as if only if the husband is unfaithful can we uh, can we do that. And actually, one of the sources for this is a is a verse from uh, Hosea where it says, "I will not punish their daughters for fornicating, nor their daughters-in-law for committing adultery, for they themselves turned aside with whores and sacrificed with prostitutes." And a people that is without sense must stumble. Right, and that's from one of the minor prophets. That's from one of the minor prophets. Yeah, sorry, Hosea, uh, chapter 4, verse 14. Um, and I think this is a really interesting idea just from the get-go, which is um, that, you know, we're talking about the woman here and the woman's adultery, and there's mm-hmm. no mention of the man's. Right. And I think the rabbis, too, are uncomfortable with this idea. They're like, what do you mean just blaming the women? What, men are perfect? Men are completely faithful? Men are without fault? Um, and I think there's a real tension there. Um, my, my favorite rabbi, it's hard to pick a favorite, but <laughs> my favorite rabbi, and I say this about all the rabbis, um, <laughs> is Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Um, because I think Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai um, is always ready to make the difficult choice um, which is the correct choice for the Jewish people. Right. And he was forced to do that after, like, the temple was destroyed. Exactly. He was forced to do that by, like, uh, by saying, okay, maybe we have to give up Jerusalem in this moment, but at least give us Yavna to be able to, like, restore the Jewish people and all that stuff. Yeah. It, exactly. He definitely has to do that a lot. Yeah, and there's a big conversation in the Rishonim of the Talmud about, like, why did Yochanan ben Zakkai not ask to save the temple? And Rashi says he knew he wouldn't have gotten it. Uh, and there are other commentaries that say, you know, this was really what the Jewish people needed at the moment and the temple was going to be destroyed by Hashem's decree anyway and all these different things. But he, he knew how to make tough decisions. Hmm. Um, and there's a really interesting uh, uh, Mishnah um, from Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. And it talks about from the time when adult, and this is uh, 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 chapter 9, Mishnah 9 in Masachat Sota. Uh, and from the time when adulterers pro- proliferated, the performance of the ritual of the bitter waters was nullified, and they stopped performing it. And it was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai who nullified it. And he actually quotes from from Hosea, from what I quoted from before, I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, for they consort with lewd women. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is living at a time and he's seeing what's happening. He's like, no one is being faithful. The men aren't being faithful. The women aren't being faithful. And what, we're just going to punish the women? Mm-hmm. Look at the men. Mm. They're leaving their wives at home. They're going out there. And for me, this speaks so loudly to the cultural moment that we're in right now, which is for so long, there has been a double standard with men and women sure. in the workplace and how they uh, in how they act and um, how they're allowed to express themselves. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is seeing this double standard and he's saying, no, right. this ceremony was not created in order to further enforce double standards between men and women. And in fact, in an age where we no longer have men who are faithful to their wives, this ceremony means nothing. Hmm. And for me, that's a really powerful moment about... Uh, it, it, it's, it can be... I feel like that's really interesting because I feel like so often um, we feel like the moment that we live in is like special mm-hmm. and like uh, unique. And like it, it is, surely. But like 
you know, he's kind of dealing with a similar problem, but 2,000 years ago. Yes. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, and we feel like the world must have been so different then. And it, uh, it surely was. For but sure like, it was. And, like, the scale of the problems were much different. Yeah, for sure. Um, but he is saying that, like, this doesn't work if you're not being faithful to your wife. Right. This doesn't work. And, in fact, going back to the Ramban, that only it's only with God's help uh, that this... That this uh, um, that this ceremony can even be performed, it really shows that, like, uh, Hashem is looking for us to be faithful to each other. Husbands and wives, friends, mm. communities, the Jewish people. Right. We have to be faithful to each other. Um, and it's not just about me waiting for you to mess up, me waiting for you to do something that is unfaithful to our relationship. Right, right. The first responsibility is on myself, and only then can I look towards others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really what Hashem is looking for us through this, right. uh, through this idea, um, and certainly through the words of the rabbis. Right. So therefore, with Rabbi Yochanan Mazakai saying, like, we can only look to do this type of process if everything else is okay. Yeah. Like it's like, uh, and I think I think that's very powerful because I think so often uh, it's very. I mean, it's very easy to judge other people. Yeah. But it's very and it's very easy to like look outward and say what what other people or countries are doing wrong. Um, but you got to first at least. Talk about yourself. Um, and uh, that doesn't mean no one has any um, authority to say anything about anyone. But, like, to have your own house in order first um, is super important. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Do um, you think there's a there's a time where you, like, had that, that lesson? Or, or that's, that's a hard... Uh, that's a hard um, uh, no, I think, I think I am all the time struggling with that in... Uh, I think I'm very quick to judge um, other people and how, uh, certainly in like the Jewish professional world, and to yeah. how them, they're conducting themselves yeah. and what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. And I'm not always great at looking at myself um, and seeing how am I affecting the people around me? Right. How am I being perceived? Um, who are the people who I might be bothering with some of the things I do? Right. <laughs> um, and I think that's a good lesson. It, it, it's really about looking inward. Yeah. Um, and only then can we look outward. Yeah. And I, I think I see that frequently with institutions. Like people will look at institutions and say like, um, you know, they're failing at this, they're failing mm. at that. When they don't realize like on some level, those institutions are made up of people. And like, especially if you're part of that institution, like you can be that change that that. Um, can help and yeah. if you only work outside of it you can never uh, kind of uh, you know be part of the change kind of thing yeah 100% uh, cool um, that's awesome thank you yeah yeah that was fun um, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot to a little bit later in the Parsha um, later in the Parsha um, it talked about how the Nisiyam at the inauguration of the Tabernacle the Mishkan um, each gave a big gift to the Mishkan. Uh, it was after everything had already been given to the Mishkan, after the Mishkan was set. Uh, I had all the things that the people gave to it. And uh, I saw this essay in Nechama Leibowitz. Nechama Leibowitz was this amazing Torah scholar um, from like the previous generation. I don't remember exactly when she passed away, but... Um, I want to say the late 1980s or early okay. 1990s. Right. So relatively, relatively recently, um, but not like immediately recently um and and so she was this amazing Torah scholar um she was very much a teacher so her essays very much are uh 
1997, okay. Um, and her essays very much were geared towards teaching with a lot of questions, a lot of, um, it was supposed to be learnt, um, like almost with the group and less like, uh, less frontal Judaism and more like um, as a way of teaching. Um, so she talks about two things about these priests, uh, princes, these Nisim, um that have, that are giving uh, this, these gifts. First, she discusses who these princes were. Um, the princes um, are talked about in the in in the midrash um, because they were the pasuk says behem hamatot. Um, these were the nisiim. These were the uh, the princes of the tribes in seven two in chapter seven verse two. And what does that mean? So the so Bamidbar Rabbah, um, the midrash um, argues that these princes were the same princes who the Egyptian taskmasters in in Egypt had put over the Jews um, to force them to work. Um, so the way I kind of think about it, it's kind of like the Jewish police and like the Holocaust or like the Kapos that were like forced to like be the enforcement on the Jewish people. Like they were put in that like crazy situation. Um, but but, but Rabbah argues that these people, the reason they were chosen as the Nisim is because they completely rose up to that task. Um, when they were asked to make sure that the Jewish people were doing making enough bricks and they knew that number was impossible, they just took the beating for the Jewish people. They just knew. And, and literally, it says these officers were wont to say it is better for us to have been beaten rather than the rest of the people should suffer. Like they took on all that punishment and all that guilt. And for that, um, God is then... As the Midrash seems to be saying, and Nechama Leibowitz says outright, that it's for that that they then become these princes, right? That they become the Nisiyam because of like how they rose to that leadership level where they were willing to take on like all the pain for the people and they were willing to like take that on for the sake of the people, um, which first of all is like crazy if you think about that situation, you know? Like, uh, you hear about, like, in the Holocaust example, like, you hear about the couple is, like, not being great. And, like, I totally get it. I, like, can't even imagine being in that situation. And, like, then see him, like, totally rise up, uh, yeah. which is, like, truly, like... I also think that the the role of the capos was not monolithic. I think right, true. Um, different capos acted differently. Yeah. Um, and it's, like, amongst Holocaust scholars, one of the great debates is about Chaim Rumkowski. Who was the head of the the Lodge Ghetto? Okay. Um, the head of the Judenrat in the Lodge Ghetto, and he was he cooperated with the Nazis um, in the deportations in a way that did not happen, for example, in the Warsaw Ghetto. Okay. Um, right. And uh, he's widely criticized, um, but at the same time, until something like two months before liberation, there were still twenty five thousand Jews alive in the Lodge hmm. Ghetto. Right. So had liberation happened two months earlier and those 25,000 Jews had lived, right. he'd be a hero. Right. But because it was two months later, um, he's not. Right. And that, on some levels, a product of history. Yeah. Um, and obviously that situation is different than For this sure. situation because I guess here they could just take the beating and somehow that was good enough hmm. um, because like it's not clear that would have been true in, yeah. in the 19, uh, late 1930s and 40s. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, it's crazy how they were able to stay stand up and like, uh, um, and I think it's a really beautiful point in terms of how God like kind of sees that sees mm -hmm. that happen in a totally different situation and like truly gives them honor for it, mm -hmm. right? They they really get like God sees this good deed they did much earlier and like takes that and takes it seriously, and doesn't just uh, like say okay. 
um, you're going to get your reward, but they become like important people because they almost acted like important people, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, so the thing is, though, is that then these people who were amazing in Egypt and then come and are presumably really good in Parsha Naso, so they come and bring all these gifts after after the Mishkan is, is being inaugurated, and they give their gifts afterwards. So the Midrash then, in another Vimin Rabba, um, argues that they were doing something wrong here, hmm. which is kind of crazy. Um, like, they seem to be really good people, um, but they do something wrong here because they only wanted to give it after, they wanted to give it as like a special gift. They wanted their name on the wall. <laughs> like, uh, like not actually, but like they wanted that like honor and they didn't want to just give with all the other people. Like all the other people were giving, giving, giving and they gave enough for the entire temple. And so the priests had to say, uh, these princes had to say afterwards, um, okay, I guess we'll give now, even though it's not really necessary, but because we wanted to give something and we can, but like they really should have given it earlier, right? They should have been like on top of it, like, oh, oh we'll give it right away. Um, and they don't, um, which is kind so of crazy. Interesting. You, you know, yeah. it's even, who's the first Nasi to bring a sacrifice? Uh, I don't remember. Nakshon. Ah, okay. Nakshon ben Aminadab, right. who's also the first, first person to walk into the sea. Right. Which, if you're looking at it from that perspective of that midrash, changes the whole uh, narrative of him being the first right. person to walk into oh, the sea. Oh, interesting. Okay, so there's this midrash that the Jews were nervous about going into the Red Sea when it when it's when it was going to split. It hadn't split yet. And Nakshon ben Aminadab, this person that then becomes one of these nesiim, um, jumps in first. But if you look at it through this lens, it's not necessary. Like that's usually viewed as like he's amazing, yeah. like he's like totally. <laughs> F. But maybe it's because he wanted to be the that person. Yeah. You know, it's like a little more uh, self-aggrandizement instead yeah. of uh, instead of pure uh, pure bravery. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, but yeah, so the um, the uh, the midrash and then just makes that point, and then Nechama Leibowitz comes and like explains like why why Moshe didn't do that like why didn't Moshe ask them to give stuff all the way at the beginning because I know like I don't know like we're going through in in Kol Israel we're going through like a rehabilitation project for the building and one of the big things we're trying to do is get naming like do naming things yeah and we're going after big donors and we're going after big donors that are willing to do it maybe for the sake of putting their name on like the top of the baby Josh or the bacon essay you know like we're looking for that type of thing and because we understand that's how the world works like we get that um and so it's interesting that moshe doesn't do that mm -hmm. right is not willing um to do that and obviously he ends up being right because everyone gives enough but like it's fascinating that he doesn't try right that he doesn't try and like go for the big donors first um he only like asks for them last so uh when Nechama Leibowitz argues is that um on the question of why they're all the same, the reason why they're all the same is to teach them a lesson um, that what Moshe was trying to teach is that like every person of the Jewish people is important and like every person of the Jewish people is like a king or a priest mm. or, a, or a prince. And like we shouldn't treat people in this moment when they're donating to a temple in this moment, we shouldn't treat people differently. It doesn't matter if you're rich, doesn't matter if you're poor, like everyone is radically important. And so therefore the Torah, they all gave the same sacrifice. Hmm. The Torah gives, tells them, like they all gave exactly the same uh, gift and the Torah writes it out to show like, oh, you think you're so special? You think you're so amazing that you gave this gift? No, you're the same as the other 11. 
Like, it's like, don't, um, it's true that you are important and you did this amazing thing and you should be given this importance, but like, don't, don't take that for granted. Don't just assume that you're amazing and you should be treated differently in every case. Um, so the kind of the Torah like points that out in painstaking detail. Um, like I've lain this last year huh. and when you lay in it, I tried to go so quickly to make this point because it's literally the same thing 12 times. It's like crazy. The same like, you know, six sentences over and over and over again. And like perhaps it's, I mean, at least Nechama Levis is arguing that the Torah is saying that kind of to like stup it to them, like to huh. say like, like, you know, you thought I could wait. I, I want to put my name on the wall. It's like, no, that's not how this works. Like everyone kind of can relate to their Judaism and their own way and everyone's important and not just uh not just like the 12 leaders you know a few months ago i went to a shul called share in newton massachusetts okay and uh they have their wall of donors and benefactors and everybody's plaque is the same size mm. um, and the rabbi explained to us that um, this was really important to us as a part of our identity as a shul that even though there was huge disparities in what people gave we wanted everyone to be honored in the same way cool yeah. Right. And I what I would say is what's amazing there is not not just the shul thinking to do that. Like that's cool. But like I, I the people that gave yeah. like tons of money, right? Like there's probably two people there, one that gave like I don't know, like $180 and then another person that gave 180,000. Yeah. And like they're being treated differently and that was okay for the guy that gave or or whatever the woman that yeah. gave. Um $180,000 and that's amazing. Yeah. Right? And it's and we should be so lucky to find a donor right. like we that should, for Kolesterol. Right, right, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm good. If you're out there. Right, right. If, if you want to put your name on something too, that's great. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, um, it's, it's, it's really amazing um, for those people. And like these people seem to be so great. They were willing to take on so much punishment yeah. um, for, for the Jewish people. And still they wanted that that kavod and they still get it somewhat like they still get it because like they're like n- n- the rest of Jewish people aren't named that they gave stuff and they are um, but still like they're still like not honored in the same way that they probably were hoping mm. uh, and and the Midrash kind of like is upset at them for that uh, yeah it's like I, it's, I think it's a real unique thing and somebody want deserving honor but also arguing for it um, but also it being given, but like them not fighting for it type thing. You it's, know, it's sort of the balance I think between naming like parts of the building after people who give money and having them have reserved seats. Because right. okay, if you name the hall after someone, that's a way of honoring them. Right. But once you start reserving seats for people, it creates a clear delineation in the prayer service itself of who gets to sit where. Right. Right. Um, so it's like, okay, we'll, we'll honor you. We'll throw your name at the top of the building. We'll give you a bigger plaque. We'll recognize that you did this. But once we're sitting in the pews, we're all equal. Because hmm. I know a lot of shows do that. Yeah, like, for you know, sure. Reserve seats, for sure. Yeah. It's like a thing. I, I mean, for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That's that a whole sense. say. Because yeah. you need to make sure you have enough seats. That's yeah. like a different thing. Um, really interesting. I mean, it's something I think about as a, as a rabbi. Because uh, something I made a point very, very quickly. And it might have been a mistake in my case just because I'm so young. Um, but like to not call myself rabbi, hmm. like to have other people call me that. Like when I introduce myself, I just introduce myself as Sam Reinstein and they know I'm the rabbi of the show. Like I'm like, hi, I'm Sam Reinstein. I'm the rabbi here hmm. instead of, uh, and something my rabbi, rabbi, uh, 
Lawrence or Larry Rothwax and Beth Aaron um, and Teaneck does also. Yeah. Like he introduces himself as Larry, um, which is kind of hilarious. Um, but uh, it's that, that type of thing. Like it's, you're trying to balance that of like, you want the honor for the rabbi in shul and like that's actually important for the institution to like pay attention to its leadership um but at the same time you don't want to like force it upon people like you you want it to be organic yeah. and like here the nasim are not asking for it to be organic they were asking they wanted to be asked it and mm. they were mad that it, they weren't um uh, and yeah i don't know cool i think it's an interesting idea yeah um any any last thoughts uh, yeah, if you're out there and you have $180,000 <laughs> uh, and you're interested in donating to Congregation Kol Israel, uh, you can find us find us on the internet. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. We, we do have a cool website. It's yeah. the beauty of having a treasurer that's uh, a website designer. Thank God. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Uh, so thank you, Jeremy, so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Um, and um, for those listening, uh, pay attention for new episodes of In the Pacha. Um, you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, and you can follow us on Facebook also, uh, In the Pacha. Uh, pay attention for next week. Uh, for Parshat Baloska.